Good morning, everyone, and early happy Thanksgiving. It's good to see old friends and family in town, and uh, what a sweet time of year. I love this. Uh, this morning, we're going to wrap up our study of Exodus, like I mentioned last week, uh, looking at the life of Moses. And as we do that, I want us to kind of pull the lens back a little bit and consider the story of Exodus within the context of the greater story of God's plan of redemption. And in order to do that, we really kind of need to go back to the beginning where everything started in the, go- in the garden, where God brought order out of chaos. He created man, woman, and his image and gave them the responsibility to steward his creation on his behalf. And he instructed them to, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And within this commission, they, they were given a choice. That God would dwell among them. His presence would be with them. As long as they put their trust in Him. And lived within the boundaries of His design for their good. But then the serpent comes along. And he calls God's goodness into question. In fact, he convinces Adam and Eve that those boundaries are not for their protection, that it's actually preventing them from a higher good, from the good things in life, the better stuff, what their full potential might be. And so Adam and Eve rejected God and choose, chose instead to believe the serpent. They pursue the selfish gain of life outside of God's authority. In other words, they chose to to go their own way, to make a name for themselves. And as a result, that relationship that they were created for was broken by a betrayal of trust. So God removes his presence. He removed Adam and Eve from the garden. But even in the midst of his judgment, we see evidence of his grace. Mankind has rebelled against God, and yet in the midst of that, God promises to rescue mankind. And he does so within that promise that from the seed of Eve will come one who will crush the head of the serpent, and his heel will be bruised. Essentially, what he's saying here is that there will be a wounded victor who will one day destroy the power of sin's curse. So even though humanity has rebelled, God promises to rescue humanity. And that's the bigger story of God's redemption. The only question is, how will he accomplish that? Because as the story continues, the curse of sin continues to course through the blood of humanity. Cain kills his brother Abel. And that curse of sin is passed down from one generation to the next, one generation to the next, to the point that when we get to the time of Noah, God assesses mankind in this way. He says, the wickedness of man's heart is great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart is on evil continually. The curse of sin has spread throughout all the earth. And only a remnant of righteousness remains. And and God protects that remnant. Noah, 
and his family. And then brings a flood as a judgment of sin upon the earth. But even after wiping the slate clean, it still did not remove the stain of sin's curse. We know that the people repopulated the earth. And one of the very next things they began to do is build the Tower of Babel. Just like in the garden, humanity is seeking to live outside of God's authority, to make a name for themselves. And so God judges their sin. He confuses their language, and he scatters them throughout the earth. So what we're learning about this story of redemption so far is that if this is up to man's ability to find a way, we're in big trouble. Because the curse of sin continues to be an obstacle. So after making that point very clear, God takes some initiative. God begins to move. And when he does, he selects a man by the name of Abraham. And he says that his promise of redemption will ultimately be fulfilled through Abraham's seed. He says that all the people of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's family. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And all these men are flawed in some way, but yet God's faithfulness remains through it all. Through the family of Abraham grows this nation of Israel. And God promises to to bring about the, the plan of redemption through this nation of Israel, this chosen people for his name's sake. And that's where we reach the story of Exodus. And I want you to watch how this unfolds in this little video. The book of Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. 
Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son, and he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. 
And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites, they're trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. So that's just part one. But you're beginning to see how the picture is being put together. How the Exodus story fits into the greater story of God's plan of redemption. But through the Exodus, we begin to see some important pieces begin to fall into place. We see how God rescues those who cry out to him. How he sets the captives free. We also learn that uh, the human heart can be very fickle, right? Even those who were slaves long for the days, even those who have been released long for the days of slavery. It makes no sense at all. So as bad as our circumstances might be, as much as we might long to be rescued, the problem is ultimately with our heart. Humanity simply cannot break free from sin's corruption. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We need a Savior to rescue us from ourselves. Someone to do for us what we simply cannot do for ourselves. And God understands that. And so, even when we are not faithful, He is. And He protects His promise even in the midst of our sin. And through the Exodus story, we begin to get a, a picture of what that redemption will look like. And it seems to be most clear in this Passover celebration. We see the Passover lamb at the heart of God's redemptive story. How the sacrifice of this innocent lamb is shed to cover the sins of a guilty people. That's at the heart of God's plan. It's at the heart of the redemption story. Now let's see how it continues from here. The book of Exodus. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant. They will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests. 
which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. Now the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, and so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. And Moses goes up as their representative, and God opens with the basic terms of the covenant, the famous Ten Commandments. These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how the Israelites and God are going to relate to each other. And then after this come another collection of commands which fill out the first ten in more detail. There are laws about Israel's worship, about social justice, how they are to live together, all shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that's different from the other nations. So Moses writes down all of these laws and he brings them down to the people who, again, eagerly agree to enter into this covenant with God. And once they do so, God takes the relationship forward another step. He tells Moses that he wants his holy and divine and good presence to come and dwell right in the midst of Israel, which develops another aspect of God's covenant promises. So remember, after humanity's rebellion in the garden, it was access to God's presence that was lost. But now it's through the family of Abraham that God's presence is becoming once again accessible through this covenant relationship, and first with Israel, and then somehow one day to all nations. So what follows are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about this sacred tent called the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar, and then in the center there's a tent that has an outer room and then an inner room. And then inside the inner room, which is called the most holy space, is a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there's angelic creatures over the top of it. It's the hot spot of God's presence. Now there's lots of detail in these chapters, and it's important to know that every piece has some kind of symbolic value. All of the flowers, the angels, the gold, and the jewels it all echoes back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans live together in intimacy. And so the tabernacle is like a portable Eden, so to speak. It's the place where God and Israel can live together in peace, at least in theory, because right here something goes really, really wrong. Israel breaks the covenant. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle, down below at the camp, the Israelites, they're losing patience. And so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf idol so they can worship it as the God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now God's presence, it's right there on top of the mountain. They can see it. But here they are below, breaking the first two commands of the covenant they just agreed to. No other gods and no idols. Now what follows is really important. God knows what's happening down below. And so he first invites Moses into his own anger and pain. And he tells Moses what he wants to do, just to wipe Israel out. But Moses intercedes by appealing to God's character. He says, first of all, destroying Israel would be going back on your covenant promises to Abraham. And then Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. What would they think if they see you destroying your own people? And so God accepts Moses' intercession and he relents. And while he does bring his judgment on those who instigated the idolatry, he forgives the nation as a whole and promises to renew his covenant. And it's right here at this point in the story that God, for the first time, describes his own character to Moses. He says, the Lord is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, 
but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. So we have this tension. God is full of mercy, but also he must deal with evil if he claims to be good. And above all, God is faithful to his promises, even though it means he knows he's committing himself to a people who are utterly faithless. And so after renewing the covenant with Israel, God commissions Moses to go ahead and build the tabernacle. And once again, we get five long chapters describing in detail the construction of the tabernacle. And it all comes together in the final chapter where the tabernacle's finished. God's glorious divine presence comes and hovers over the tent and our hopes are high. And so Moses, he goes right up to enter into the tent and he can't. He actually can't go in and that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but not really if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realized. So the book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question as the book closes is how is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and his goodness and his presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about. But for now, that's the book of Exodus. Isn't that fun to see it all together like that? And what I hope you see is how the story of Exodus is fitting into the more a significant story of God's plan of redemption. And with each detail, it's as if the picture is being filled out more and more. It's kind of like the videos. The more of the story you hear, the better the picture is, and you begin to understand, oh, now I see what I'm looking at. And if you'll look real closely, you'll see that the picture is actually a portrait. The story is pointing to a person. It is intended to be the portrait of Jesus Christ, and that's what he wants us to see. If you'll think about that bigger story, how Adam and Eve were banished from the presence of God because of sin, and how from that point on, mankind continues to, to make a mess of things. It's confusing. It's convoluted because sin keeps getting in the way. But even in the midst of the mess, God is orchestrating all of these events to reveal a portrait, a wounded victor from the nation of Israel who will defeat sin. A victory that comes through a sacrifice, the shedding of innocent blood to cover the sin of the guilty. The tabernacle puts that on visual display and so that it's repeated year after year after year. The blood of that sacrifice is the only way that sinful man can enter into the presence of a holy God. According to God's redemptive plan, that's how that relationship that we are created for is finally restored. But the animal is not sufficient. It's pointing to a person. And the Bible makes that increasingly clear as you continue with the story that is being told. In fact, Moses makes a really important point about what this looks like in the end. So if you would, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. This is Moses speaking, and he's describing 
for the people of Israel what will ultimately come through the nation of Israel according to God's promise and what he will be like. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord, uh, your God, at Horeb, at, at Sinai, on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see the great fire anymore, lest I die. Now, we all remember that, right? It's when God met with his people on Mount Sinai. It was a wonderfully terrifying experience. He's referencing it here because they will never forget that day. And one of the things that they won't forget was how terrifying it was for their guilt to be in the presence of his holiness. That's what they will never forget. To the point that they said, please, God, don't speak anymore. We get it. We're guilty. And listen what he goes on to say. And the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. What they've said is true. And so here's what will happen. I will raise up a prophet from among you, from their countrymen, like you, Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them, and all that I command him. And it shall come that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So our Redeemer will ultimately be a prophet like Moses, one who will rescue us from slavery, one who will lead us from the wilderness, one who will teach us God's word. We see that he will show us the way, ultimately because he is the way. He will intercede on our behalf as a mediator, an atonement for sin. He's not going to just point to a sacrifice. He will become the sacrifice. The story of redemption is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so when we get to the New Testament, the apostles pick up on this promise of a prophet like Moses. And they begin to put these pieces together. There's one particular event that occurs early in the Acts story. Acts chapter 3 verse 12. And what happens in this scene is that Peter and John are in the temple area. And while they're there, they heal a man who has been lame. And surprisingly, all the people are amazed as if they've never seen something like this before. But they do. They begin to ask questions about how this could be. What is happening here? And I want you to listen very closely to what Peter says in response to those questions. And I've asked Adam to read that for you. So listen closely to what he says. Acts chapter 3, verse 12. You can go from there. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. 
Yet now, brethren, I know, I know you did in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul, every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and the covenants which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. You see what he did? He painted the picture of the full story of God's redemptive plan. He tells them very clearly that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He goes all the way back to Abraham's promise, that promise of, of a seed that would come through Abraham's family, a, a savior that would come from the nation of Israel. And he wastes no time in pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of that promise. He is the innocent lamb who shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. The wounded victor who crushed the head of the serpent and was raised to new life showing his victory over sin. And yet Jesus was rejected by his own people. So Peter is essentially pleading with him, don't miss the picture of what God has done on your behalf. Turn and Believe in him. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He wants them to know that God's plan of redemption was ultimately fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way in which sinful man can live eternally in the presence of a holy God. And by rejecting Jesus, they are choosing the, to, to bear the consequences of sin on their own which has been made clear in the story that that sinful corruption means eternal separation from the presence of God. That's been the point. But God has gone to great lengths to, to restore that relationship that we were ultimately created for so that we might dwell in His presence eternally. The Exodus story is an important part of the redemption story. But here's something else. So are you. So are you. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. You are a people of God's possession. That's what the Bible says about you. You're ambassadors for Christ in a sin-cursed world. The story of redemption is still being told. And as a follower of Christ, you have a part to play. Because here's the reality. The deceiver is still trying to change the story. And there are a lot of people 
who are believing his lies. And so God's people have been commissioned and equipped to tell the story of redemption so that people understand that we cannot live eternally in the presence of God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. We're called to speak the truth in love without compromise. We're called to live in a way that puts the gospel on display. The story of redemption is still being told. And you and I are a part of that story. And every single detail matters. Because in those details, we see the beauty of God's redemptive plan. So let's be thankful that he gave us so much to see something so important. And let's be a people who proclaim that truth to the world around us. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so grateful with how intentional you are about all the details that unfold within this biblical narrative that tells the story of your plan of redemption. That, that you've made it clear through us trying to find our own way that it is simply impossible because we cannot escape the captivity of sin's curse. And so you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is our wounded victor whose sacrifice of an innocent man who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That our salvation is through a Savior who gave his life so that we could be set free. And if we believe in Christ, we are free indeed. So Lord, as that story continues to be told, and as that deceiver continues to work in this world in which we live, may we be emboldened, strengthened, um, motivated to continue to tell the story of redemption through the testimony of our life that puts the gospel on display of people who have been rescued, set apart as a holy nation, a people of your possession, priests who represent who you are to the world around us. May we be faithful to tell the story of your redemption. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior who has set us free. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day.